The reading today is from John 18, verses 28 through 19, verse 16. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early, and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Therefore Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. So Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, We are not permitted to put anyone to death, to fulfill the word of Jesus which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, king of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify! Crucify! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law. And by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you, and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement. But in Hebrew... Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold, your king. So they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, 
Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So then he handed him over to them to be crucified. Let's pray. Father God, your kingdom is not an earthly one. It is a spiritual one, Lord. I pray that you would open the eyes of our heart to see the spiritual things of your kingdom as we learn about you today, Lord. I pray that you would impress these things upon our hearts and our mind and that they would go with us wherever we go, that they would not depart from us, Lord. That the the reality of your sacrifice, Lord, your perfection, Lord, that you are handed over to be put to death by godless men, Lord, and the sacrifice you made for us. Pray that you would bless Tom's message today, Lord, and bless us as we go out from it. Make us useful for you. In the name of your Son, I pray. Amen. Good morning. All right. The big question is, what is truth? Easy question, right? Pilate asked Jesus that question shortly before sending him to his death. And human beings have been asking that same question for a very, very long time. And God has never changed his answer. If you've spent much time in God's Word at all, God's Word being the Bible, what I'm about to say will be no surprise to you. But if you haven't, it's going to shake up your categories a little bit. Hopefully a lot. There are two things that are absolutely indispensable to God's definition of truth. I'm not talking about the world's definition of truth. I'm not saying there is nothing about the world's definition that's legit. There are things that are true. They are factual. They hold up under scrutiny. But there is a difference between that which is factual and that which is truth. We're going to talk this morning about God's definition of truth. The first thing that is indispensably applicable if you're talking about God's definition of truth is that truth is inherently unchangeable. Truth is inherently unchangeable. The second thing is that truth is never not about God. Truth is never not about God. I'll explain why I use that wording in a moment. In Hebrew, the language of the Old Testament, there's only one word for truth. If you ever hear the, the name emmet, it comes from that word. The word means, it means that which is Established, steady, stable, fixed, unchangeable. That's what the word means. It's not one connotation of the word. It is the root foundational meaning of the word truth. That which does not change. In Psalm 119, 160, the psalmist writes, The sum of your word, Lord, is truth. And every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. It's everlasting. It does not change. The phrase relative truth is therefore the ultimate oxymoron. If it's relative, it's not truth. If it changes, it's not truth. Truth is fixed, immovable. Unchangeable. And because it is, it applies to every person the same way. If truth were defined by the individual, it would 
have no power to correct. You would have your truth and I would have my truth and your truth would have no authority over me and my truth would have no authority over you. Does that sound familiar? And any effort that I made to correct you would would be overstepping. But the Bible says exactly the opposite about truth. Exactly. 180 degrees opposite. The Bible declares truth to be the basis, the basis upon which one person, that person whose thinking and actions are in line with the truth, on which that person is compelled to correct the person whose thinking and action is not in line with the truth. Compelled. The Bible everywhere instructs and expects the people of God who know the truth to correct those whose beliefs and actions are not in line with the truth. That would not be possible if the truth meant something different to each individual. If we were the arbiters of truth, we're not. There are few things we could talk about in this day and age that are more fundamentally important than this. 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 and 25 says, The Lord's bondservants must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. See, Combating untruth with truth saves people. It is gracious. It is not intolerant. It is loving. It is gracious. It's intolerant too. Because truth is intolerant of untruth. In Jeremiah 7.28, God declared that it was Judah's abandonment of truth that made them uncorrectable. He said, this is the nation that did not obey the voice of Yahweh their God or accept correction. Truth has perished and has been cut off from their mouth. That means they weren't talking truth to each other. That's why they perished. That's why why they incurred the, the harsh judgment of their God. See, truth corrects because truth remains the same no matter who's passing it along or who's hearing it. It doesn't come from us. Truth is always true for every person. If a, proposi- if a proposition applies to me but does not apply to you, it may be a fact. You may have a cavity on one of your molars and I may not. But it is not truth. And the reason that truth is unchangeable in every case for every person is because of the second thing that's absolutely indispensable to God's definition of truth, and that is that truth is never not about God. You might ask, why not keep it simple and just say truth is always about God? Well, I used the wording that I did because truth touches everything in God's creation. You can say things about all kinds of things in God's creation and be speaking truth. But here's the kicker. It cannot be truth unless it matches up with what God says about that thing and connects that thing in creation with its creator. 
Truth as God defines it is never not about God. You can go online to any electronic Bible concordance. There are several. And you can look at the more than 200 instances of the word truth in the Old and New Testaments. And you'll see that I'm not making this stuff up. To speak the truth means to declare accurate things about God and about His creation as His creation is connected with Him. So anytime we're talking about things or people or relationships or events and God is not in the conversation, we're not speaking truth as God defines it. doesn't mean we're lying. We might have our facts lined up nicely. But we aren't speaking truth. Because truth is never not about God. On the first Good Friday, men, both Jews and Gentiles, passed judgment on the truth. Both Jews and Gentiles determined to dispense with the truth and sentenced the truth to die. But none of that changed anything about the truth because whatever verdict men render against the truth, Jesus is still the truth. Last Sunday I gave you three big outline points for this message, this passage, excuse me, for two messages. The first was the Jews and the truth. The second, Pontius Pilate and the truth. The third is Jesus, comma, the truth. And the last will be what it means, what all that means for us as servants of the truth. I added a point. We looked at the first one, the first point on that list last time. We're going to look at the rest this morning, Lord willing. Starting with Pontius Pilate and the truth. The great annual festival of Passover filled Jerusalem and many of the surrounding towns in Judea with Jews and Jewish proselytes from all over the Roman Empire. In fact, Jerusalem was so brimming over with people that the people had to flow over into all the surrounding towns and villages. Jerusalem couldn't even hold all of them. Pontius Pilate's place of residence was Caesarea, not Jerusalem. Pilate was governor of the entire province or state of Judea that surrounded, in which Jerusalem was, was positioned. But every year, three times a year, Pilate relocated his headquarters from Caesarea to Jerusalem. And he took a bunch of soldiers with him. And the reason he did that was because the city got so overpopulated during those times that it took some more policing to keep things Stable. Pilate had served as prefect or governor of Judea for roughly seven years by this point, and there were three pilgrimage festivals every year, so he had, he had a lot of experience with this already. He had been through this quite a few times. But on this particular Passover, Pilate found himself between the rock and a hard case. The rock was Jesus and the hard case was the Jewish leadership at the Jerusalem temple. And it's very clear from John's account and from all the other Gospels that Pilate found both Jesus and the Jews to be scary. Pilate had the the rather complicated assignment of governing the Roman province that had the highest density of Jews in the entire Roman Empire. His boss was Tiberius Caesar who had appointed him, the emperor of Rome. He was, Tiberius was the emperor of Rome. And Pilate's job was to rule over a nation within a nation in the Roman Empire. 
a people that in his particular province overwhelmingly outnumbered Roman citizens. And a big part of his responsibility was therefore to keep the peace. Pilate had a healthy fear of Caesar, but he also had a healthy fear of the of the Jewish leaders whose headquarters was the temple in Jerusalem. And among those Jewish leaders, none uh, none were as fearsome as the high priestly dynasty of a man named Annas, who had been in control of the temple leadership for more than 25 years. In 25 years, you can rack up a lot of influence and make a lot of connections, including with people in the Roman government. When the representatives of that priestly powerhouse showed up at Pilate's doorstep that Friday morning demanding a fast food trial of this man Jesus with a guilty verdict and a sentence of crucifixion as the foregone conclusion, Pilate found himself in a very dicey situation. But what made it dicey is what is really fascinating about this passage. Because see, it wasn't as if Caesar would have blinked if Pilate had just gone right along with the Jews and crucified this guy right up front. In fact, I think that's what Pilate expected to do when he sent his soldiers to help these Jews arrest Jesus. I think he thought this was going to be a slam dunk. But he hadn't counted on Jesus. John records two conversations between Pilate and Jesus, both of which drove Pilate to repeatedly seek to release Jesus. The first conversation revolved around whether Jesus was king of the Jews. And in that conversation, Jesus affirmed that he was indeed a king. But he told Pilate that his kingdom was not of this world. And then Jesus told Pilate that the purpose for which he was born... And the purpose for which he did come into this world was to bear witness to the truth. And then he said to Pilate, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And you know that means that if he's saying to Pilate, if you don't hear my voice, you're not of the truth. Now that's not the kind of agenda that you'd hear from any other king. My mission, the purpose for which I was born, the purpose for which I came was to bear witness to the truth. Pilate's response was the same convenient dodge that's used by millions of people still today. He said to Jesus, what is truth? And the assumption is that the question was unanswerable. But Pilate didn't manage to dispense with Jesus quite so easily as that. Three times in this passage and in Luke's gospel, Pilate says to the Jews, I find no guilt in this man. Repeatedly, he tries to get the Jews to let him release Jesus. The third time that Pilate told the Jews he found no guilt in Jesus, they they ratcheted things up a little bit. They answered by saying, look, we have a law, and by that law, Jesus ought to die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. The next verse after that says, when Pilate heard that statement, he was more afraid. That means he was already afraid. And now he was more afraid. Afraid of whom? Afraid of Jesus. Getting out of this would have been easy 
if he wasn't afraid of Jesus. At that point, Pilate came to Jesus again and he asked him, okay, where are you from? See, Pilate, a Gentile, had made a critical connection. That Jesus actually was the Son of God that meant that his kingdom was God's kingdom. But Jesus didn't answer him, and that clearly put Pilate into an even more worried state. So Pilate asserted his authority over Jesus. He declared that he had the authority either to release Jesus or to crucify Jesus. He pulled rank, he pulled rank on the Son of God. I don't recommend doing that. And that's when Jesus dropped the real bomb in this passage where Pilate was concerned. Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. You'll notice he didn't name a name there. Some people say he's talking about Judas. Some say he was talking about Caiaphas. I believe he was nonspecific because he was talking about the entire Jewish establishment. He came into his own, and his own did not receive him. In fact, they purposed to kill him. Now things were getting serious. It was one thing for Jesus to say his kingdom was not of this world. Surely an otherworldly kingdom was no big threat to an earthly kingdom. Surely the authority of the ruler of an otherworldly domain didn't have anything to do with the authority of the ruler of Judea or the ruler of Rome, right? (laughs) But the second conversation had taken a, a decidedly different turn because now Jesus was getting way too close to home. He told Pilate he had absolutely no authority except that which had been given to him from above. Now that would have been nothing for Pilate to to get excited about if Jesus had been talking about the authority delegated to Pilate by Caesar. That was authority from above, right? Pilate knew that wasn't what Jesus was talking about. He said three times to the Jews, I find no guilt in him, but there's something very interesting in this passage. Pilate's declarations of Jesus' innocence ended after this conversation, which was all about who actually had authority to determine whether Jesus lived or died. Now Pilate had a real problem. He tried even harder to release Jesus, but now it wasn't because he still considered Jesus innocent of any charge that might give Caesar some heartburn. Now Jesus was talking about an authority to which both Pilate and Caesar were accountable, and he knew that would not sit well with his boss on earth. The Jews... We're very good at this little game. They, they recognized at that point that this was their opportunity to seal the deal with Pilate to get him to order the crucifixion of Jesus. They were reading him exactly correctly. They cried out. That means they didn't go to him in private. It means they stood in a public, in the public square and they shouted out loudly so everyone could hear it. Pilate, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. You see what's happening here? This is critical, so please stay with me. 
I wouldn't want to sit there and listen to me preach. I'd fall asleep. But but nudge the guy next to you and listen, please hang in there with me on this. Rome was filled with all kinds of truth claims about spiritual things and spiritual authorities. There were temples to Greek gods and Roman gods and all manner of pagan gods and goddesses of every variety all over the empire, every one of which supposedly had some kind of power and authority. The Greek and Roman gods were always fighting over authority in the heavenly realms according to the, to the mythology that taught the people about them. But really, how much did the activity of any of those gods ever change anything here on earth in the day-to-day lives of real people? The Caesars of Rome had at times claimed to be gods. And at least they had something to show for it. They had, they had taken over the remnant of the greatest kingdom in the history of the world, the kingdom of Alexander the Great. That was their power now. They had subjugated hundreds of nations and city-states. They controlled the life, death, and well-being of millions of people. And it was Caesar's authority that Pilate bore, not some ethereal, otherworldly authority. So who was Jesus not to answer Pilate's questions? But when Pilate tried to pull rank on Jesus, the response he got was a game-changer. Now Jesus said Pilate had no authority at all except what had been given to him by someone far greater than Caesar. That was a threat to Pilate. That was a threat to Caesar. That was a threat to Jews. That is a threat to every human being if they are not submitted to this king. Here's something everyone on earth needs to know, beloved. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. It doesn't come from here. But He is most certainly King over this world. He was then, He is now, and He always will be. His jurisdiction is all of His creation. Satan is the present prince of this world. The earth is temporarily Satan's domain in the same sense that Judea was temporarily Pilate's domain. But Satan has never had an ounce of authority over anything except that which is given to him by God. If you don't believe that, read the book of Job. Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? As if Jesus was supposed to know that that was an unanswerable question. And thus, the whole idea of Jesus coming to bear witness to the truth wasn't of any concern to anybody. But Pilate was catastrophically wrong about truth. Here is the unchangeable truth about the unchangeable truth about the Son of God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is God. He is the King of kings. He is the great I Am. He is the Creator of all things and the Sustainer of all things the things in the heavens and the things on earth. He upholds all things by the power of His Word. From galaxies to quarks, from angels to demons, from kings and presidents to street people, in Him we live and move 
and exist. He controls all blessing and all curse in all of His creation. He controls all well-being and all calamity. We all answer to Him every second of every day. Proverbs 21.1 says, The heart of a king is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever He wishes. <laughs> that means Pilate was incidental. Pilate didn't even have authority to determine his own decision about what to do with Jesus. That decision was predetermined. He was accountable for it. But in Acts chapter 2, Peter said, Men of Israel, Jesus the Nazarene, this man, by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you handed over to be crucified, to be nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men. It was predetermined by God. Alright, that's who's in authority. Everything in the gospel, in this gospel account and in the others demonstrates that Pilate was scared of Jesus, but his fatal miscalculation <laughs> was that he was more afraid of the Jews. When in reality, he had nothing to fear from the Jews at all. Because they were just as much in control as he was. And that means they weren't in control at all. The only one worthy of any of Pilate's fear and of all of Pilate's fear was the man who stood before him in bonds. The Jewish leaders read Pilate like a book when they threatened to rat Pilate out to Caesar for allowing the professing king of a competing kingdom to live. That sealed the deal for Pilate. He decided they were more scary than Jesus and he ordered Jesus' crucifixion. All right, we've talked up to this point about the Jews and the truth. We've talked about Pilate and the truth. Now let's talk about Jesus, comma, the truth. When Pilate posed the question to Jesus, so you are a king, Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born and for this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So what was the truth to which Jesus came to bear witness? Well, if you back up to John chapter 8, He said to the Jews, if you continue in My Word, then you are truly disciples of Mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And then He said, if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. So what's the truth that will make you free? It's the Son. In John 14.6, S-O-N, the Son, John 14.6, Jesus said to His disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through Me. What's the truth that Jesus came to bear witness to? Himself. In John 17, He said to the Father on behalf of His disciples, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Thy Word is truth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. What's the truth to which Jesus came to bear witness? Jesus. And He bore witness of the witness 
of Jesus. He bore witness to the veracity, the truthfulness of the word of the prophets that God had given, all of which bore witness to Him. The incarnate word and the written word, that's what God calls the truth. This wasn't the first time that that truth, the truth, the truth, had been on trial in the courts of sinful men. It wasn't the second or third time that the truth had been on trial in the courts of sinful men. It wasn't the hundredth time or even the hundred thousandth time. The truth has been on trial in the courts of sinful men ever since Satan said to Eve, has God really said? But every time that men or angels have put the truth on trial, the truth has been unthreatened, untouched, and unchanged because the one who is the truth is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If you want to know what you and I must do when we are put on trial in the courts of men because of the truth that we proclaim, even in the unofficial courts of public opinion, even in the workplace or the classroom or Facebook or Instagram or Reddit or Snapchat, you will have your crystal clear answer about what to do if you just look at what Jesus did. See, we don't have to agonize over the question, what would Jesus do? We just have to ask, what did Jesus do? And do that. He said to Pilate, for this I have been born and for this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. That's what we have to do. And he said, everyone who hears, everyone who is of the truth hears my, my voice. Now, beloved, as agents and image bearers of the truth of Christ, you and I are called to say to this world as clearly as Jesus said to Pilate, for this reason I have been reborn. And for this, I remain for a time in this world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Because the truth I bear isn't from me. It's from God. Do you have that confidence when you speak truth to people in this lost, dying, pitch dark world. When you speak God's truth, do you declare that what you are passing along is that which God has revealed directly through the prophets in many portions and in many ways and in these last days through the Son who is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. There's no guesswork here. The truth that we bear to this world is the truth. And what it does is it makes every human being in every age accountable to God. It shuts their mouths and it leaves them accountable to God in order that they may be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. That truth will not make you popular with this God-forsaking, self-relying world. It will make you the worst category of criminal imaginable to this world. On the night before Jesus stood on trial before Pilate, He declared to the, His first eleven disciples and to all of His disciples in every age that an hour is coming 
for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. Are you on board with that? Beloved, it's time for every child of God to choose up sides. It's time for us to take our stand on the side of Jesus. And as we resolve to do so, we need to understand that it will not be by the strength of our resolve that we will stand. It will not be by the power of our will. The boldness and courage and staying power of our proclamation of the truth will be determined entirely by the immovability of the one on whom we stand. And that means that our most earnest labor, beloved, our most earnest labor must be the daily labor of diligent, prayerful dependence on the one who is the very ground under our feet. As we close, I want to be very sure we get that last point because it is vitally important. And I want to look at it from this perspective. During Pilate's first interrogation of Jesus on that momentous Friday morning, Jesus told Pilate that if his kingdom were of this world, his servants would be fighting so that he would not be handed over to the Jews. And then he told Pilate the reason they weren't fighting was because, quote, my kingdom is not of this realm. End quote. I think if I had been in Pilate's shoes at that point, I would have said something really snarky like, well, it's a good thing your kingdom isn't of this world if those are your soldiers. You say if your kingdom were of this world, your servants would be fighting. Are you talking about the servants we can't find this morning? The ones that abandon you? That fled like roaches in a, in a dark room when the light comes on? Those, those servants? Are you talking about servants like Peter? The Kiliark I sent to arrest you told me what Peter did. The whole bit with the ear. And he told me what he did after that too. Denying you with curses. Is Peter like all the other soldiers in your kingdom's army? If he is, it's a good thing your kingdom isn't from around here. Pilate didn't, answer, didn't, didn't say those things, but you know what? If he had, and if Jesus had condescended to respond to him, I think Jesus' answer would have been something like this. And please hear me, beloved. Please hear me. I believe Jesus would have said, yes, Pilate, the citizens of my kingdom and the soldiers in my army are people just like Peter. See, Jesus is Yahweh. Sabaoth, the Lord of armies. When he brought his people Israel out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt, he called them his army. That's the language that he used. He said they walked away with the spoils of battle. That's military terminology. They were a nation of unarmed slaves accustomed to generations of humiliating subjugation under the hands of tyrants. But they walked out of Egypt leaving in their wake a nation whose glory had become its shame. A nation whose gods had proven to be no gods at all. A nation whose way of life had been ravaged by plagues the likes of which no nation had ever experienced. And when God's people walked out of Egypt, they carried in their purses and their saddlebags the spoils of a great victory, the wealth of a great and powerful nation. And you know what? They did so without wielding a single weapon. Because that's how God's 
kingdom works. Yes, the kingdom of God's Messiah is indeed made up of people just like Peter and just like us. And through the faithful witness of just such people, God has been populating that kingdom with even more men and women and children just like Peter and just like us. Sinners who were helplessly lost and dead in our sin without God and without hope in the world. People whom He miraculously plucked out of the darkness and brought into the astonishing light of the living God forever. And make no mistake, He will return as judge of all mankind. And when He returns, He will be accompanied by the hosts of heaven, by the army of Yahweh. And that army will be made up of people just like Peter and just like you if you belong to Him. People who will be clothed in robes made perfectly white because they have been washed in the blood that Jesus willingly gave up by the hands of godless men that first Good Friday. That army will stand steadfastly with Him on the day of His fierce judgment as He slays with the sword that comes forth from His mouth every last human being who has ever persisted in standing against Yahweh and against His Messiah. Beloved, the foremost command of our commander to us as the troops in His army has always been the very same command that He gave to Israel through Moses when His people stood between the powerful Egyptian army at their backs and an impassable sea before their faces. And that command is, fear not. Stand by and see the salvation of Yahweh which He will accomplish for you today. That was His word to His people that Good Friday morning when He won the greatest victory ever won. No man, no angel, no demon, no created thing that ever existed could have stopped Jesus from winning that victory at the cross. That, beloved, is the truth about the truth. The unchangeable truth of whom we now live to bear witness. Dear Father, if there was anyone here living under the assumption that the truth is for us to determine, I pray most earnestly that You would humble that person to hear and embrace Your definition of truth. I pray that they will fall down before You in humility and trust in Jesus as the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And I pray for myself and for all my brothers and sisters in Christ that we will stand courageously with Christ living out the truth of Jesus in our daily lives as we proclaim that same life-giving truth to one another and to the lost. I pray this in His precious name. Amen.